I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Welcome to Spoiler Alert with Trisha Ferguson. This week, Trisha ruins The Walking Dead for Sean McGrath. Sean, did you watch The Walking Dead finale? Not yet, Trisha. I have a T-vote, so don't say anything. Oh my God, you will not believe what happened. Trisha, what did I just say? I'm not going to say anything. It's just, oh my God, the last five minutes? Did not see that coming. Are you kidding me? What? I didn't say what happens. Right, but you said you weren't expecting it to happen, so now I know that the ending is unexpected. Therefore, I know that anything they allude to throughout the episode is probably just a red herring. Well, hurry up, okay? I've got to talk to you about it. I'll get to it when I can. God, I just cannot believe he died. Oh, Trisha! What? What are you doing? I didn't say who it was. Well, well, first of all, now I know somebody dies. It's the Walking Dead. It's a zombie show. People are gonna die. Fine, whatever. But you used he, so now I know that a guy dies. There's like ten guys on the show. Well... Nine, now. So now I know that only one guy dies. Once he goes, I know that the rest of them are therefore safe. Well, it's in the book. I haven't read the books. They've been out forever. It doesn't matter, Trisha. Just call me after you watch it, okay? And let me know if you saw that double cross coming. Trisha! That was Trisha Ferguson ruining The Walking Dead for Sean McGrath. Next time, Trisha ruins You've Got Mail for Andrew Harris. So right after Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks get together at the end... They get together at the end? Trisha! What did I say? It's not a spoiler. It's... It's... From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire. Spoiler alert. People are gonna talk. Tonight, comedian and storyteller Lauren Weedman, author Cheryl Strayed, and music from Laura Gibson. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister. And you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience and in just one hour, the time it took F. Scott Fitzgerald to decide whether Gatsby was going to be great or merely sufficient, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And of course, music from our house band, The Mutton Chops. mentioned earlier, we'll have Lauren Weedman on the show tonight. She has created seven solo shows and will tell us a tale about what happens after you find your birth parents. And we also have Cheryl Strayed on the show. Cheryl wrote the memoir Wild, From Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail. And it was about the 1,100-mile solo hike she took as a novice backpacker in 1995 that saved her life. And even if you've never backpacked in your life, this book is an absolute page-turner, as evidenced by the critical and reader response it's gotten in just the first couple of weeks since its release. And I can absolutely speak from the perspective of a non-hiker, because I am only one of four people in the Pacific Northwest who does not hike. (laughs) 
Um, the other three are a 94-year-old woman who has arthritis and just stopped hiking last week. Um, there's a man with severe allergies who has to live in a bubble. Uh, and then there's a toddler who can't find hiking boots in his size. So, but I, what I can say is that I have hiked at least once in my life. I was 10 years old, and my father decided that my brother and I were wusses. And he was right, well, at least about me. My brother actually, he liked to jump over large items on his bike and skateboard, which doesn't seem at all wussy. But I, I enjoyed playing out elaborate scenes with my Barbies, wherein Sean Cassidy came to visit me at law school. And we were immediately married by my favorite torts professor, Farrah Fawcett. So we had differing levels of wussiness, but neither of us had ever endured any real hardships. We lived in the suburbs of Aurora, Colorado, and the longest we had ever walked was about a half a mile, safe in the knowledge that the closest water source, the Dairy Queen, was just a quarter mile away. And my father, most decidedly, not a wuss. My father went to West Point, and then he became a ranger. Rangers are an elite force in the army who go through months of specialized training, Specialized training like water procurement and preservation, ambush techniques, combat water assessment, which actually tests the student's ability to overcome fear of heights and water, so maybe they put them in a kiddie pool in an airplane and just push both of them out together. <laughs> and then there's the Malvesti field obstacle, and you've all seen this in movies. They crawl through a shallow 25-meter muddy worm pit with knee-high barbed wire over it, Though he wasn't training to be a ranger, I'm pretty sure this was where Richard Gere almost gave up in An Officer and a Gentleman. But he didn't. Why? Because, if I recall correctly, he had nowhere else to go. So rangers also had to parachute into small drop zones, rappel down steep mountainsides, and go on 15-mile tactical ruck marches with full gear, including weapons. So it was this ruck march that gave my father the idea for the 10-mile hike that would finally toughen us up. And he mapped out and pre-hiked the terrain through some dry, rocky, undeveloped land near our subdivision. And he turned it into a treasure hunt, where the prize for our ability to get through the whole thing would just be there at the end waiting for us. And that, oddly, did not make it more fun for me. <laughs> and, you know, he thought the trek might be difficult for us physically. He may have worried about the hot Colorado summer sun giving us heat stroke. What he did not count on was my almost Olympic-level ability to emanate and sustain a potent air of righteous indignation. <laughs> I remember being hot. I remember navigating through miles of tall, dry grass with no path to follow. I remember thinking a lot about snakes and that my jean shorts and halter top may not have been the best attire for the task at hand. But mostly what I remember is being utterly cheesed off for about 9.75 of the 10 miles with the remaining quarter mile reserved for crying. And during the course of training, it is normal for ranger students to experience heat stroke, frostbite, dehydration, trench foot, contact dermatitis, and what they refer to as wildlife bites. But I would imagine that all of that is a walk in the park when you lay it next to a pleasant nature hike with your super huffy 10-year-old daughter who could easily offer laser stink eye training at ranger school. And in the insult to injury department, when we finally got to the end of the treasure hunt, what we found was a penny each under a rock near a strip mall. <laughs> now, I was sweaty, I was dusty, and I was very tuckered out from all the eye rolling. And so it didn't really feel like the right reward for the task. But he did actually let on that that penny was to go towards whatever we wanted at our favorite water source, the Dairy Queen, which we had magically found ourselves in front of. And even though I should have been grateful for it, I still think I pouted my way through my peanut buster parfait that day, which is really hard to do if you know what a peanut buster parfait tastes like. <laughs> but what my father was trying to do for us that day was what Cheryl did for herself on her hike. He wanted to make us stronger. He wanted to make us self-sufficient to help us learn that there are things that you think you can't do that you absolutely can. It's just gonna suck while you're doing it. A lot. But I think that it was obvious that that wasn't gonna happen in a day. And my lesson from that day was that I had a tremendous knack for sulking that I would put into use all through my teens. 
And now that my dad's gone, I can only hope to teach other 10-year-old daughters a lesson. Cut him some slack. He is trying. And if he wants to take you on a 10-mile hike, you should probably go, because one day, you might move to Oregon, where not having that skill will turn you into a complete freak. Thank you. Our next guest's latest album is called Le Grand, named for the town in eastern Oregon she wrote it in, but also indicative of the larger sound of the record. Laura Gibson has expanded her sound from the quiet folk guitar of her earlier records to a broader, more layered, sometimes almost jazzy sound. In the past, she's collaborated with artists like Colin Malloy of the Decemberists and Laura Veers, and her songs can be heard in James Westby's recent award-winning film, Rid of Me. She also has the honor of being the first and the 200th person to ever perform a Tiny Desk concert at NPR's All Songs Considered. <laughs> With songs from her new record, Le Grand, please welcome Laura Gibson to Livewire.
Welcome to the show, Laura. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you back. Um, so this record is named after an eastern Oregon town uh, that you visited and you spent some time in. And how is the record like that town? Yeah, well, I took a trip out to La Grande when I was very first kind of putting together my ideas about the kind of record I wanted to make and also the kind of, I guess, growth I wanted to experience in my own life. And, um, and so I had this trip, um, and it was, it was just a short trip, but I spent a day kind of wandering around um, the town and uh, went to the... I wanted to visit the train station because um, I, I first decided to go out to La Grande because I was studying... Um, historic train wrecks in Oregon. Studying, of course you were. <laughs> by studying, I mean looking on Google. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> was there a famous train wreck that happened in the Grand? Yeah, so I found out there was a, a train wreck that happened right outside of this place called the Hot Lake Hotel. And um, it used to be a sanitarium way back in the day. And, um, and it was about 100 years ago. And um, only one person was killed. It was um, one of the, the workers. But um, the Hot Lake Hotel is supposedly... Haunted. Right, and you actually shot a video there. Yeah, and so I was lucky. We, I wrote the song The Grand after visiting the Hot Lake Hotel, and, um, and then we went to shoot a video for the song, and um, wonderful filmmaker, director Alicia Rose made a video, and we were lucky enough, um, they were generous, the owners were generous with the space and let us take over the third floor for two days. Right, and they let you, you stay there. They did, yeah. I would have said no thank you <laughs> to staying in the old sana sanitarium, but you, you were fine with that. I, I did. I, I actually was really interested in finding a ghost, um, so I did things like go walking in the hallways in the middle of the night by myself, and uh -huh. I did not see a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't have been a bummer for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, it's a, it's a lovely record. Uh, the record is called The Grand. Uh, Laura Gibson, and she is going to come back a little bit later and play another song for us. Right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Laura Gibson, everybody. You're listening to Livewire, and music tonight is brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Robust Raisin. Don't let the sweet raisins and cinnamon fool you. This bread can build a barn in a day and teach your kid to play piano. Not really. Dave's Killer Bread, just say no to bread on drugs. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air. I'm Christopher Courage, sitting in for Terry Gross. Writer Scott Harris just published his first book, Willie T and the Big 16, about President William Howard Taft and the passing of the 16th Amendment. Thank you for joining us, Scott. Welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Everything all right? Hmm? Oh, of course. You seem a little distracted. Well, maybe a little. I was really looking forward to meeting Terry. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of fresh air, so. Uh, well, so am I. And I gotta tell you, it's a great honor to be sitting in this chair in her absence. So is she on vacation or something? Uh, she's at Daytona Beach for spring break. <laughs> we won't see her for weeks. So Scott, tell us about how you came to write a book about William Howard Taft and the 16th Amendment. Did you read it? I did. Right. You sound skeptical. 
Well, it's just that Terry always takes the time to really get to know her guest's work. Yeah, she would have known why I wrote it. You know, you're right. Okay, I'm sorry I'm not Terry, but I think that between you and me and William Howard Taft, this is going to be a great show. All right, okay, I'm sorry. It's just that Terry Gross is a, is a hero of mine, okay? You know who's a hero of mine? Martin Luther King. Can we continue? <laughs> okay. Now, I see here that you went to Emerson University. I did. You know, I went to Emerson as well. Oh, wow, did you? Wow, that is fascinating. Uh, all right, you're kind of being a jerk right all now. All right, that's because this isn't good enough, all right? I've listened to every show Terry has ever done. I dreamt about coming on this show, okay? I, I pretty much think I wrote this book just so I could come and talk to Terry Gross about it, all right? Do you know how boring William Howard Taft is, okay? Do you even know what the 16th Amendment is about? It's about income taxes. It's really lame, and I hate it. Okay, I understand. I wanted the whole fresh air experience from start to finish. Okay, I wanted to arrive in the green room and find a personal note from Terry welcoming me to the show, and then I, I wanted to enjoy the ants on a log that she makes. What are ants on a log? It's celery with peanut butter and raisins. Oh, I get it. The, the raisins are the ants. Wow, you're a winner. Yeah. I wonder if you could do the same thing with cream cheese. Have you ever seen a white log? You just don't get it. Okay, let's just calm okay, down. And during the interview, we are totally in sync. And at the perfect moment, she makes a great joke about Article 1, Section 2 of the 16th Amendment that she knows that only I would get. And then together, we laugh and laugh and laugh. And at the end, she hands me a delicate origami flower she's folded during the interview. She does that? Yeah. It's one of her trademarks, I'm pretty sure. Well, I can draw Snoopy. Really? No. Uh-huh, yeah. And now I'm stuck with this. Yeah, I've been meaning to ask you about that. I made it for Terry. It's a Welsh tanning wreath decorated in Terry's questions from the March 20th interview of Ahmed Rashid. Okay, intense. Well, let's just go to a break, and when we return, we'll see if Scorth can come it's up... Scott! How did you come up with Scorth? This is Christopher Courage, sitting in for Terry Gross, and this is The Freshest Air. It's fresh air! I know, I'm just screwing with you now. We'll be back after the break. That was Andrew Harris and Sean McGrath with sound effects by David Ian. Our next guest, Lauren Weedman, is a multifaceted entertainer. She is a comedian and actress who has appeared on HBO's Hung, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and True Blood. She has appeared as a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and in the Steve Carell and Tina Fey film Date Night. She is the author of the hilarious memoir, A Woman Trapped in a Woman's Body, and she has written and performed seven solo shows and is currently working on two more, Single Room Occupancy and The People's Republic of Portland. Tonight, she brings us a story about her birth parents. Please welcome Lauren Weedman to Livewire. Uh, my mother, uh, my, I call her adopted mama, um, I'm just kidding, I don't call her that, but, but she, I was adopted, um, and uh, she uh, um, did the search for my birth mother, which, and I didn't ask her to, which is awkward, you know, because she was like, I'm doing it, and I was like, I, I truly was, I mean, I was curious, but I wasn't passionate about it, and I was 19 years old, and so she started, and Murder, She Wrote was on, was very, very popular. And I, I absolutely know that that was a part of it because she was into the, you know, the whole detective thing. And so, and she got a private investigator and she went, um, she would go undercover um, and she would even be on the phone making phone calls. And I'd be like, you're on the phone. You don't need the glasses and the hat and everything. And she would be uh, fully invested in, in, in um, playing this role of, and I thought she was doing it to sort of mess with me a little bit just to like, you know, just, so I'd be like, oh, mom, you know, like more. Uh, but, and I didn't, all, I almost didn't even believe she was actually doing the search because it was such a big deal, yet she was being so kind of um, silly about it, you know, with the with the undercover thing. And um, and the uh, she and, and she knew what city I was uh, born in, and so she had found her and the private investigator found the yearbook from uh, the local high school in Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, so, yeah, and so anyway, and um, 
And so I, I know I couldn't wait to find my birth mother in Terre Haute, Indiana. Um, nothing wrong with it. Sorry, I certainly don't mean to. They were just calling people on the phone, just saying, you know, my mother would call someone and be like, oh, hello, this is Sharon Weave, and I'm calling, and do you remember anybody being absent during their junior year from, you know, <laughs> for five to six? You know, and then she, people would be like, oh, yeah, there's that one girl. She had a cold. You know, they're like, a cold. Oh, that's it. You know, people, that's how they covered back then or whatever. And so she, uh, uh, and then for like a week then, she, she would be like, we've got a lead. This is her. And, and they literally would be like, there was one point that the, they found an, an Asian girl who had been absent, you know, for three months. And, and then, and I literally, and, and the whole table, like, I, I remember coming to the dinner table and everybody would be looking at me like, I see it. I see it. She is. She does look vaguely. And I was, I was like, zealot. It's like, whatever they would find, I'd be like, I am that person. Like, they, I, they'd find someone with like long, dark black hair. And all of a sudden I'd be like, my hair looks long and dark and black like I couldn't it, it was so odd I would like I would fit whatever you know a uh, 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 mother figure she found for me um but anyway she ends up finding my um my birth mother and it happened through it's the most under they, they bribed somebody in a hospital you know um and they typed the name and you know our uh, my name in the computer and then my birth mother's name came right up and we called her and we had a um and we um she wanted to meet us and so my mother adopted mama said um <laughs> That she wanted to take us, uh, and this I have to say too. This whole time, my relationship with um, family was not. Um, I, I was not a super. I mean, no nineteen-year-old, I guess, is like really super sentimental, except in their journal or something. But I was never. I, I would always say to people like, "Oh man, I don't like. I'm not really. My family is like whatever. I'm adopted, so I'm not super like you know attached to the whole thing. And you know, and like you know, what? I have family, but they're my gay friends. They're like my family because they they yell at me and they monitor my weight. So yeah, they're like my family, you know. And so I don't need. Uh, you know, I was. Very very flippant about the whole, even the search. I was like, they found my birth mother, so that'll be intense, you know. And on the airplane right there to Colorado, where she was, I, w- I remember being like, I feel fine. I'm not even that nervous. And literally throwing up and not even knowing I was about to throw up. So anyway, bleh, like, whoa, that was weird. Anyway, so didn't acknowledge. I was just numb to how, I mean, I was so intensely nervous that I went completely numb. Um, and then we get off the airplane and my birth mother is there and a random uncle, um, for my adopted mama's brother, uh, was there and he just showed up because it was a big event, you know, I want to see it, you know, so he, he showed up and then we get off the airplane and there's my birth mother and she's young. She had me when she was like 15 years old and, uh, and she's very, anyway, I see her and it becomes, it's this huge Oprah moment between my mother and her and where they're just like hugging each other and crying and, and literally my mother, who is the entire time growing up, she never, I, I, all of a sudden she's like grabbing my birth mother and is like, you know, thank you for our beautiful daughter. She's given so much joy. And I'm like, I swear to God, she's never said that to me. Like all of a sudden, like all of a sudden she was like, oh, the gift you have given. And I was like, oh, don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. She's never done that before. And I was this, you know, and I was the prize that was dropped from the heavens, you know, and like, anyways, it was this big show. And so I'm, I'm mostly noticing that where I'm like, oh, suddenly she's thinking, you know, because the whole time when I was growing up, she was just like, ah, it means another therapy session for you, lady, you know, if I came home late from, you know, because they were nervous about me because I was adopted, so they didn't know what had happened to me, you know. If I laughed a lot, they were like, that's a lot of laughing. What do you think that's about, you know? Um, they, this, or any big emotion, they were like, oh, that's something we probably don't know about. So... They have this emotional moment, and I'm not a huge huggy kind of person, and I really wasn't then at all. Like, if people even tried to hug me, people could said that they could feel me hug, pu- pushing them away at the same time they're hugging me. You know, I'm like, oh, thank you for hugging me. And then, like, or that I pat their backs like they're on fire or something. I'm just like, oh, okay, 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 go on. Oh, it's over. You know, because I'm just not really physical. And I had this, and I, I see my birth mother, turn, her name is Diane, and she's turning towards me, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to have this moment where I'm going to have to be like, oh, like, this is happening. And I'm feeling a lot, but I don't don't want to make a thing. I don't want to have all this in front of people. And it was too intense. And she looks at me and she can sense it in me that I don't want that. And she, she just looks at me and she's like, kind of like squeezes my arm. And she was like, we'll have a lot of time. We'll talk later. And I was like, oh God. Okay. I, oh, good. All right. I like her. And so, and that was, that was the right thing to do. And then I see her turn around and walk away to go get the car. And I'm like, oh my God, there's, that's my butt walking away. <laughs> and and she really, her arms are like swinging aside, you know, and then like, we went to breakfast and she's like, I'll have the breakfast burrito. And I was like, oh, it's my people. And so, you know, and my mother is like, I don't eat before three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, it's like my adopted mother is like a ballerina. Today. Anyway, um, and so I go to her house and when I get to my, um, my uh, uh, birth mother's house, 
um, there is, uh, um, their kids, are, they had introduced, well, my birth mother and birth father, my birth father was also um, made aware of my existence, they weren't together, he was 16 at the time, they both had, um, introduced, they both had children, she had taken all of her kids out to, um, to uh, like Chuck E. Cheese's, and they, she told them they're having a big surprise party, and, they, um, and a big, big cake arrived, and, and, and when the cake gets there, she tells the kids, she's got three little kids, and she's like, you know what we're celebrating, you have a big sister, and she's coming back on Wednesday, like around six, you know, like it was very specific, and, and they, and they were just like, even though they didn't even understand what she was saying, they didn't, they were just like, cake, balloons, good, okay, the sister, and my birth father, on the other hand, like took his kids in, into a room and like, you know, sat him down and was like, you know, a long time ago, I made a mistake, okay, <laughs> and that mistake may be visiting next weekend, you know, and like, it's so amazing, you know, because like, you know, to this day, you know, they're, 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 the kids, the way they treat me both is so, is so um, uh, different. And then the, the, the last thing I'll say, but the last time I saw my birth mother, we went to, we were at the Paul Simon, we went to see Paul Simon in Indiana, and um, they played the song Mother and Child Reunion, and, um, and she like, she jumps up and she like grabs my hand. I, I, I remember thinking like, oh yes, hand holding. I can see why people have been doing it for generations. It's, it's a nice thing to do. <laughs> You know, and it does feel good to have like your mother holding your hand. It does feel like, oh, I'm th-, like I got had, you know, I, 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 the, the monster, the ice lady melted, you know, and, and we're singing and we're the mother and child reunion. And the whole time we're thinking this is like, and we're, and I start crying, you know, because we're like, oh, it's been 20 years and we've had this because re-, she's been in my life the whole time. And, um, and then after the concert, uh, we, we're out in like the the parking lot, and um, and I'm, I tell some of the people that we've gone to the concert with. I was like, it was kind of intense, and I you know I'm gonna get all maudlin about it, but you know the mother and child reunion thing, and my birth mother's there, and it's so amazing family. And they were like, you know that song is about when his dog died, or and the people were like, no no, it's about a Chinese dish, and like a, no, it's just from that. That's all. I think it's about a mass suicide. And I was like, well, that's touching. That's family, you know. Lauren Weedman. You're listening to Livewire, and tonight's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, celebrating Earth Month with their earth-friendly cleaning products with no phosphates, chlorine, or fake colors. With their three-tiered echo-scale rating system, you'll only feel guilty when you don't clean, not when you do. You can give new meaning to your cleaning at WholeFoodsMarket.com. Honey, can you come in here? What? I think there's a penguin in the kitchen. <laughs> what? There's a penguin in the kitchen. Oh, I heard about this. It's a global warming thing. The the Hansons had a penguin problem last summer. Well, there's one in our kitchen now. Oh, there's only one? No, no, there's two. One's on top of the freezer, the other one's just sitting in the sink, just kind of wiggling around. Freezer? We're on a cleanse, Jerome. You can't have any ice cream. I wasn't... One of them bites. Did you leave the lights on? Did I? Maybe. Why is that important? The Antarctic gets 24 hours of sunlight in the summer. They're naturally drawn to bright lights. And tuxedo stores. I, uh, well, that's just great. If you leave the lights on, they're just going to wander in. Well, I know that now. Okay, there's three more behind the refrigerator. What? Now there's five, seven... There's 15 penguins in the kitchen, Helen. How many? I think one's trying to make a sandwich. Oh, did they get in the Alaskan salmon? Because we need that for Tuesday. Can, can, can you just come in here? Can it wait? I'm Pinteresting. No, it can't wait because the kitchen is full of penguins. Well, get rid of them. It's unsanitary. Get rid of them? Get rid of them, she says. Get, get rid of them with what? Try sweeping them outside. Sweeping them? Outside. With a broom. All righty. Now, now they're, they're, they're just going right back where they were. Try the vacuum. Have you ever used a vacuum, Helen? Oh, just call the exterminator. Really? They're kind of cute. We don't want the neighbors to find out. Mar- 
Marty and Trish had Arctic foxes last summer, and no one has gone to their game night since. Uh, it wasn't the foxes. Their game nights were terrible, and their children are ugly. Well, shoot. We have to be at Latin dancing in 20 minutes. But why don't you just turn off the lights, and maybe they'll all fall asleep? Work for the polar bear in the garage. You didn't get rid of the polar bear in the garage? He's hibernating. And we never parked in there anyway. Oh, fine. Well, let's get out of here. We'll be late. Hey, you guys, no parties. That was Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson with sound effects by David Ian. Our next guest is the author of numerous essays and the novel Torch, which was chosen by the Oregonian as one of the top 10 books of 2006 by Northwest authors. She has since taken her place in the advice columnist pantheon as the beloved and radically empathetic Dear Sugar on the literary website The Rumpus. And now, wild from lost to found on the Pacific Crest Trail, her memoir of hiking 1,100 miles alone has hit it big. The movie rights were recently optioned by actress Reese Witherspoon and Dwight Garner of the New York Times, who admitted to weeping alone in a coffee shop while reading it, <laughs> calls it fierce and funny. Last week, it made its debut at number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. Please welcome Cheryl Strayed to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, so I think, first of all, the, the question on everyone's mind would be, for someone who had never backpacked in her life before, what made you decide to hike 1,100 miles on your own? Because, really, I think I had this idea that doing so would be just like a lot of day hikes back-to-back. Right. Um, and it, it turned, I thought I'd you know, be coming across picnickers and barbecue. People would say, come on over here and you know, have a burger. But what, I, what happened <laughs> is, so I think that any time I've ever undertaken a big endeavor, I, I do that thing where I idealize it. I think it's sure. going to be easier. I forget to think the details all the way through. <laughs> And you imagined a lot of beautiful vistas and I did. meditating. Perhaps. Well, and that's it is. I, you know, when I decided to take this hike, I was really in a desperate place in my life. I was being very self-destructive. I had sort of reached the bottom. And I was reaching for a spiritual quest. And so even though I did all the logistics and packed the food and planned, what I imagined the journey would be once I got out there was that I would be meditating on these beautiful vistas and so forth. And then I got out there, and it was much more physical than I thought it would be. It was much more grueling. I forgot about that whole spiritual quest stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there's a great passage right at the beginning of the book that illustrates that a little bit, and I was hoping that you could just read that little snippet. Sure. And, yeah, this is from the prologue. And uh, at this point, um, what's happened, those of you who have read the book, uh, I've lost a boot I've lost a boot over the side of a cliff, and then I just decided any reasonable person would just throw the other one over, too. Because, I mean, you know, what's one boot without another boot? It seemed like years ago now, as I stood barefoot on that mountain in California, in a different lifetime, really, when I'd made the arguably unreasonable decision to take a long walk alone on the PCT in order to save myself when I believed that all of the things I'd been before had prepared me for this journey. But nothing had or could. Each day on the trail was the only possible preparation for the one that followed, and sometimes even the day before didn't prepare me for what would happen next, such as my boots sailing irretrievably off the side of a mountain. The truth is, I was only half sorry to see them go. In the six weeks I'd spent in those boots, I'd trekked across deserts and snow, past trees and bushes and grasses and flowers of all shapes and sizes and colors, walked up and down mountains and over fields and glades and stretches of land I couldn't possibly define, except to say that I had been there, passed over it, made it through. And all the while, those boots had blistered my feet 
and rubbed them raw. They'd caused my nails to blacken and detach themselves excruciatingly from four of my toes. I was done with those boots by the time I lost them, and those boots were done with me, though it's also true that I loved them. They had become not so much inanimate objects to me as extensions of who I was, as had just about everything else I carried that summer, my backpack, tent, sleeping bag, water purifier, ultralight stove, and the little orange whistle that I carried in lieu of a gun. They were the things I knew and could rely upon, the things that got me through. I looked down at the trees below me, the tall tops of them waving gently in the hot breeze. They could keep my boots, I thought, gazing across the great green expanse. I'd chosen to rest in this place because of the view. It was late afternoon in mid-July, and I was miles from civilization in every direction, days away from the lonely post office where I'd collect my next resupply box. There was a chance someone would come hiking down the trail, but only rarely did that happen. Usually I went days without seeing another person. It didn't matter whether someone came along anyway. I was in this alone. I gazed at my bare feet with their smattering of remaining toenails. They were ghostly pale to the line a few inches above my ankles where the wool socks I wore ended. My calves above them were muscled and golden and hairy, dusted with dirt and a constellation of bruises and scratches. I'd started walking in the Mojave Desert, and I didn't plan to stop until I touched my hand to a bridge that crosses the Columbia River at the Oregon-Washington border with the grandiose name, the Bridge of the Gods. I looked north in its direction, the very thought of that bridge, a beacon to me. I looked south to where I'd been, to the wild land that had schooled and scorched me, and I considered my options. There was only one I knew, there was always only one to keep walking. Cheryl Strayed. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to author Cheryl Strayed about her book, Wild, From Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail. You were in uh, so much physical pain. Your pack was way too heavy for you. And along with the pain came the fact that you were a woman hiking this trail on your own. And, and you ran into some, some scary stuff, but you had this mantra on the trail that was uh, just, I am not afraid. I am not afraid. And you talked toward the end of the book about, ha about having the guts to be afraid. Can you talk about that, what you meant by that? Well, I had to, I had to assert that I wasn't afraid. I had to say that to myself because I had to negate the story that women are told about fear and solitude and adventuring through the world alone. You know, women are seen as prey, and I had to reconceive um, what it was like to be a woman in the wilderness alone. And so I did that. I had to insist that I wasn't afraid. And there is this point in, in the middle of the journey where I suddenly am just shaken by something that's actually quite small, um, relatively speaking. And, and when I realized I was afraid of that, I realized that I'd broken through to another level, I guess really of courage, where I... Um, I could acknowledge that, that I could allow fear into the room with me, or into the pack with me, if you will, since I wasn't in any rooms. And, I, um, and that was a really powerful moment, because it actually, when I said I had the, the, you know, I was able to acknowledge that I was afraid, was actually a braver moment than when I was trying to deny the fear. Yeah. Well, and, and something, you, you actually, during the course of the trip, you read a lot of books, and each time that you went to a new supply station, there was a new book waiting for you because you had read and burned the, the book that you'd previously read because of the weight, That's so right. you wouldn't have to carry it. But there was one book that made it through the whole trip, never got traded or burned, and that was Adrienne Rich's A Dream of a Common Language. That's right. Why was it that this book was the one that you kept with you the whole time? This book, and I'm holding it in my hands. Those on the radio can't see that, but um, it it's is the, the actual book, book that you took. It's an actual book that I carried the whole way on the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, and it was this book a friend had given me um, a week after my mom died. And 
poetry really had been, poetry and stories and books, literature, had been uh, the thing that saved me. You know, it was really my, my religion. It's there where I found the greatest consolation, the greatest truth, the greatest beauty. And this book in particular, um, I say that I, you know, memorized many of these lines and the, these poems. They were like incantations to me. And so it was, it is, interestingly, sort of the sacred text of Wilde. And it was my sacred text during that time. And I couldn't bear to burn it. And I also um, just felt it was important. I had to have it in my pack, even though it, others wouldn't consider it a necessity. I did. Yeah. Well, <laughs> a lot of people didn't pack like you. That's right. You, your pack was probably about 50 pounds? Oh, no, it was far more than that. Like 70, yeah, no, it was 75? A, well, just uh, when I set out, like, I, I began my hike in the desert. Um, and as it turns out there's no water in the desert, apparently. <laughs> Um, I, I, I didn't put that together until like a couple days before the hike, and then I realized I had to carry a lot of water with me at the beginning. So on the first day of my hike, I had 24.5 pounds of water alone. And then it, if you read Wild, you'll see there's this long list of things I took with me, including things like a foldable saw and a very large camera that's, um, you know, and all <laughs> these huge things lens. that were very heavy. So I could not lift my pack an inch, um, I, I actually couldn't lift it, and I had to go through this rigmarole to get it on. And that was the paradox, is how do I bear a weight that I can't bear? Yeah. Well, I was wondering if you wanted to read, um, the, for, for people who may not know this, Audrey Rich was um, a very influential poet and feminist, and she actually passed away just this, this past week at the age of 82. That's right. And the first night on... The trail was this this reckoning for me because I you know set out with this pack that I couldn't I couldn't even stand up beneath its weight and I walked walked only about three miles through the desert and I realized that I was in for something um, much harder than I had predicted and so I pitched my tent really just because I needed um, to get out of the the elements and I pulled this book out and I read this poem out loud to myself it's a it's a poem called Power. It's the first poem in this book, The Dream of a Common Language, Audrey Rich. Living in the earth deposits of our history, today a backhoe divulged out of a crumbling flank of earth, one bottle, amber, perfect, a hundred-year-old cure for fever or melancholy, a tonic for living on this earth in the winters of this climate. Today I was reading about Marie Curie, she must have known she suffered from radiation sickness, her body bombarded for years by the element she had purified. It seems she denied to the end the source of the cataracts in her eyes, the cracked and superating skin of her finger ends, till she could no longer hold a test tube or a pencil. She died a famous woman denying her wounds. Denying her wounds came from the same source as her power. And I want to say that Adrienne Rich died the opposite of that woman. Her whole uh, career was about claiming and acknowledging that, that her power came from the same source as her wounds. It's a great loss. Well, and you can see why that poem meant so much to you on, on the trip, why it spoke to you so much. It did. Well, it's a stunning book, and um, congratulations on all the wonderful things that are happening with it. The book is Wild from Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail. The author is Cheryl Strayed. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Now it's time for some teeny tiny tales, some Lilliputian literature. It's time for Livewire's Flash Fiction. Tonight our audience has been given the Herculean task of writing an entire story in just six words based on the prompt, My Wilderness Adventure. Members of Faces for Radio Theater have their top picks and will now read them with the help of fill-in band leader and premier back-of-head model Jim Brenberg. And now Flash Fiction. Stephen writes, Monkey stole my guava. Battle ensued. <laughs> Rebecca writes, I thought you packed the matches. 
Aaron writes, the whole forest heard your orgasm. <laughs> Holly writes, two eyes stared back. I ran. And Stephen writes, accidental sex in a sweat lodge? <laughs> Great job, guys. Great job, audience on Audience Flash Fiction. (laughs) Flash Fiction was brought to you tonight, as always, by New Belgium Brewing Company. This month featuring their Shift Pale Lager. Mixing three unique malts and four distinct hops together produces citrus and soft fruit undertones and a crisp flavor. Was I just describing Nirvana? No. I was actually describing a beer. There's a difference. Thanks, New Belgium. We'll be right back. And now, once again, please welcome Laura Gibson. Oh, 
And now, as promised, the man who has been writing this entire hour while we've been doing nothing on stage. To sum it all up for us, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. What I learned tonight is that everyone is always ruining things for me before I get to them. Like George Washington, for instance. I've always wanted to be the first president of the United States. So that's totally shot. Then I thought maybe I could at least be like the 27th president or something. Nope, William Taft, that chubby jerk, took it. Then I didn't want to be president anymore. After Taft, it was all just about politics anyway. So when the depression sets in, when you realize all your life's goals were achieved 60 years before you were born, then the only thing to do is get in a rickety motor car with one nearly flat tire on a hot, broken day when it feels as if Chester A. Arthur is in the trunk trying to dislodge Grover Cleveland from a bathtub until you check into a rundown hotel in La Grande, Oregon. But when I got there, all the rooms were full. Drugged out depressives were already there standing around on one leg like bourbon smelling lawn flamingos. <laughs> Nicholas Cage was already drunk in the swimming pool. I knew I was too late for the nor I needed. So then I just thought I'd look for my birth mother or something because I felt the journey might give me some grounding since I was pretty scattered at that moment. So I picked up my cell phone, called my mom. Where are you? <laughs> what? Where are you? Why? Are you on drugs? Are you in Eastern Oregon? I'm busy. I'm making dinner. So you're at home. Aha! I want to cry and hug you right now. That's nice, dear. So that adventure was over. On the way back at the Cascade Locks, I thought I might hike the old PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail, you know, but thanks to Cheryl Strayed's beautiful book, Wild, I couldn't find a spot in the damn parking lot, and all these people were going to be hiking for six months, so you knew they weren't freaking moving anytime soon. So I drove down the road, driving, driving, in my drunk rickety Dodge, and when I finally found a parking spot, it was in my driveway. The garage was full of penguins. I guess I'll go to the Hunger Games. I know at least William Taft hasn't seen it. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Lauren Weedman, Cheryl Strayed, and Laura Gibson. The Mutton Shops are Jim Brunberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Reed Walsman. 
now featuring their new record of 99 songs of 30 seconds or less at mchops.com. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville, introducing Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, director Jason Rouse, and master of sound David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and house poet Scott Poole with guest writer Ben Coleman. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Drew Flint. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Von Drele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and Make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us. And uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>